0: Welcome to the World War One History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. The Rainbow Division in the Champagne Defensive, July 1918 In July 1918, Germany embarked on its final offensive of the war, Friedensturm, or the Peace Offensive. German Quartermaster-in-Chief and virtual dictator of Germany general Erich von Ludendorff was punching holes in the Allied lines trying to break through and destroy the French or British before American manpower could make a difference in four offensives since March Germany had made great gains against the Allies and come to threaten Paris Friedensturm the fifth offensive called for a massive push in the Champagne the goal was to push across the old battlefields of the Champagne to the east and west of Reims and seized the rail center of Chalon sur marne severing the French armies defending Paris and Verdun. But it met a disastrous end. Holding the Rheims area was French General Henri Goureau's 4th Army. Employing an elastic defense, they destroyed everything General Bruno von Moudre's 1st and General Karl von Einem's 3rd German armies could muster. To Gouraud, the Lion of Africa, it was his crowning achievement. Most of his career had been in service as a French colonial officer, and as a younger man, he was even shot and wounded by an arrow. In the serious campaigns before World War I, he established order throughout the colonies of French North Africa. But at the beginning of the Great War, he was wounded in the shoulder at the head of the 10th Division in the Ardennes. In 1915, he was chosen to lead the French contingent in the Dardanelles campaign, and there he was blown up, lost an arm, and was forever maimed in his legs. Despite, Guerreau was chosen to lead the French 4th Army in the critical battle in the Champagne that he forever swore turned the tide of the war. He was so attached to the spot on which the crest of the German wave was broken that he spurred the movement for Memorial Ossuary to be built there. The Ossuary of Navarre sits just north of the old lines of suen Perthes, herdes There, thousands of French and colonial soldiers are buried with their commander, Henri Guerreau. His chief of staff of the 4th Army, André Petelet, is buried next to him. And just across the road is a French sign that reads, Here the invader was pushed back. It was the scene of the fiercest fighting of the Battle of the Champagne, where Gouraud believed the tide of the war was shifted and where he wanted to be buried. The position where the marker is was held by the 167th Alabama Infantry of the United States 42nd Infantry Division, the Rainbow Division. The top of the Ossuary of Navarre has a sculpted French soldier with the features of Gouraud, and he stands entwined with an American and another Frenchman. Evidently the experience with the Rainbow Division in the Champagne made a lasting impression on the great General Gouraud. At the beginning of the summer of nineteen eighteen, the German offensives begun in March were still hammering away at various points on the Western front. Their fourth offensive montdidier Noyon of June nineteen eighteen attempted to straighten the German line between the two salients created in the first three offensives. It was crushed. Nevertheless, the French fully expected the Germans would push again, and they needed American troops. Major General William Mennehurst 42nd Division was in the Lorraine, south of Verdun, where they had been holding the Baccarat sector by themselves since April. In 82 days, they suffered over 2,014 casualties, undergoing intense bombardment, especially toward the end of their stay in Lorraine. They were one of the better trained divisions that American Expeditionary Force Commander General John J. Pershing had at his disposal to give to the French. Orders were issued, and the Rainbow was pulled out of the line and sent northwest. Few in the division had any idea where they were going, and the rumors ran thick. Mainly, they were glad to be out of the trenches. When they left, French 6th Army Corps commander, General George pierre Duport praised the Rainbow and Menaher and his staff so brilliantly directed by his chief of staff, Douglas MacArthur. The men moved through the town of Baccarat between the 18th and 23rd of June, as the 77th Infantry Division filled their place in the line. The 77th was a National Guard unit from New York, with many men from New York City, like the Rainbow's 165th Infantry. When they passed each other in the night, the jawing began back and forth. We're going in to finish what you couldn't, only to be followed by, Oh, you'll all be prisoners by tomorrow, or don't let the Bosch get you. Some men were yelling out street names or people they knew as fellow New Yorkers, hopefully finding each other in the morass of moving men. It was the same thing that went on between all divisions. The Rainbow Men and the Marines really went at it whenever they crossed paths. The Marines would say, What's the brightest color in the rainbow? Yellow! Yeah, well, you all go home and you can tell everyone you saw some real soldiers, a Rainbow Man would reply. Men from the infantry, artillery, engineers, signal units, machine gun units, trench mortar batteries, police units, and headquarters troops marched to the rail centers at Charmé, Koulou, and Théon Les Vosges, The truck and wagon trains began the four-day, 230-kilometer journey to the region around Chalons-sur-Marne. The stories, characters, and adventures those men remembered or couldn't remember during the journey have filled volumes. In some towns, the people had never seen Americans before and went out of their way welcoming all those boys so far from home. On June 21st, Douglas MacArthur had his now legendary encounter with General Pershing. MacArthur was overseeing the loading of Rainbow units on the trains at Charme. He and his staff planned the entire movement of the division from Baccarat to the Champagne, all of which went off without a hitch. Pershing showed up unannounced and got a close-up view of the filthy Rainbow men, fresh out of the trenches. MacArthur received a ton thrashing like he probably never had before or ever would again, in front of everyone. Pershing said the Rainbow was the worst division in the AEF And it was all its chief of staff's fault, Douglas MacArthur. Furthermore, before he left, Pershing said he held MacArthur personally responsible for restoring order and discipline. MacArthur was shattered. Major Walter Wolfe said the chief of staff walked into town and sat for a while thinking what could have possibly caused that. It seems that more than anything else, MacArthur wanted Pershing's blessings for the things he was doing. He always told the story about how Pershing once told him, we first captains have to stick together, regarding their shared history of holding the position at West Point. Pershing, however, seemed to be annoyed by MacArthur. He wrote on his efficiency report, this officer has a high belief in his own abilities. MacArthur was beginning to wonder if the staff at AEF headquarters had it in for him. He didn't have to wonder too long. Five days later, MacArthur found out he was on the list for promotion to Brigadier General. It now seems apparent that it was Secretary of War Newton Baker and United States Army Chief of Staff, General Peyton March, that put MacArthur on the promotion list for Brigadier General. Pershing had submitted his own request for promotion, but MacArthur was pushed by these two men. Controversy arises because March was an arch enemy of Pershing and served closely with Lieutenant General Arthur MacArthur in the Philippines. The late General's wife, Mary Hardy MacArthur, was writing letters to Pershing, encouraging him to promote her son. There is no reason to believe she wasn't using her influence on the Chief of Staff and her locale of Washington, D.C. Despite any perceived favoritism, MacArthur was performing admirably in the field and amassing an incredible record. No one had anything negative to say about his promotion to Brigadier General at the youthful age of 38. MacArthur wrote to the Commander-in-Chief on the day he was officially promoted. The letter is effusive in its thanks to and then praise for Pershing. Like he had written to Leonard Wood years before, MacArthur made the wish that someday Pershing would be carried to higher office, meaning the White House. After the four days allotted for the journey to the Marne Valley and another four days for relaxation, the Rainbow Division congregated again in the French countryside near Camp de Chalons, just northeast of chalons sur marne Again, the Rainbow Division was logging a lot of miles, marching from one area to another. En route to Camp de Chalons. one evening, dispatch motorcycle rider Albert Ettinger was surprised to find MacArthur at the head of a column of men marching to the assigned destination. Ettinger said that after talking to many other dispatch riders, they all said that was where you usually found the chief of staff when the division was en route somewhere. Attached to the French 5th Corps at Camp de Chalons. The Rainbow began training for a river crossing and an assault on Hill 250 across the Marne. Though out of the front lines, they were not allowed to lose sight of what they were in France for. The 149th Field Artillery of Illinois had their one-year formation anniversary on June 30. There was a patriotic, heartfelt speech, and then the commander of the regiment, Colonel Henry J. Riley, spoke. You're all cogs in a wheel. Do as exactly as you're told immediately and without question. Guerreau wanted to see the Americans now under his command, so he had a driver take him from Sweep to Tiloy et As the car turned a corner into the town, there was Major Cooper Wynne and his 151st Machine Gun Battalion waiting in formation to greet their new commander. The car hit one of the cooks on the end of the line, who of course turned out to be drunk. Guerreau immediately got out. He was tall, cool, a striking figure, he bent down next to the man, showing extreme concern. That won every man in the 151st to Garot. It was obvious to all of them he was a man among men. MacArthur would later say he was aware of his fame before he met General Garot, but that he was in no way prepared for the heroic figure he met. To MacArthur, he was perhaps one of the greatest influences of his life on how he wanted to carry himself and be seen. Nonchalant yet piercing. Commanding, yet compassionate, thoroughly acquainted with every aspect of his army and the military situation at hand. It's a hard ideal to achieve. Above all, it was Gouraud's appearance and the way he carried his shattered body that affected MacArthur. Distinctive of the Frenchman was the amount of gold braid on his cap. Was this the influence for the cap MacArthur had made in 1936 and would wear throughout his life? The battlefield Gouraud chose for the 42nd Division was northeast of the town Sweep, in a line that almost ran parallel to an old Roman road that ran through the region, some 23 kilometers northeast of Chalons-sur-Marne. Sweep was the guardian of the road that led there. This was the flat, rolling champagne scattered with scrub pines. This wasn't vineyard country. This was white chalk And many of the Rainbow Men, all of whom served on the Texas border with the National Guard in 1917, likened it to there. To them, it would forever after be the lousy Champagne. There was more to eat than there was in the Lorraine, but it was hot, dusty, hazy, you were white all over. The entire earth churned up, and there was trench after trench, and stronghold after stronghold, for as far as you could see. Armies had been there since 1914. French commander General Philippe Pétain believed the Germans were about to strike and was imploring commanders to adopt an elastic defense. Employing the tactic of withdrawing from the front lines and then counterattacking at the right moment was a tricky business, and attack-minded generals like Ferdinand Foch, Henri, Matthias Bethelot, and Jean Dugault thought it foolish to yield ground. Even Garo was against the practice. But then he saw the wisdom of winning the battle without sacrificing so many men. From that second, he was dedicated to turning the Champagne into a killing zone, and the Rainbow Division was a key to this. France was still reeling from the mutinies of 1917. Now there was the end of the war in the East. New German units in the West using the new Houthier stormtrooper tactics shattering many parts of the Allied line, and Paris was threatened. The only boost was the American build-up. Gouraud wanted as many French units to serve with the Americans as possible, to see them there, to see them fighting with them, to know they were real. Gouraud estimated where the German thrust would be greatest. The Butte de Menil and the Butte des Soins were the two prominent rolling heights in front of the Allied lines east of Rheims. They masked German movements and provided avenues right into the towns of Saint-Hilaire, Le Grand, and Soissons about six miles northeast of Sweep. They were the avenues to what Guerrero thought was the ultimate target, Chalons-sur-Marne. Taking Rheims gave the Germans freedom of movement in the Marne salient, but taking Chalons-sur-Marne cut Paris from Verdun. Guerrero put the rainbow there, at the center of where he thought the action would be the thickest, right where all the Frenchmen could see them. The 42nd Division was attached to General Pierre Nolen's 21st French Corps composed of the French 43rd, 13th, and 170th Divisions. Brigadier General Michael Lanahan's 83rd Brigade of the Rainbow was to the left with the French 170th Division, and Brigadier General Robert Brown's 84th Brigade to the right with the French 13th Division. Goureau and Nolan planned on holding the line lightly at the first sign of attack. Sacrifice men would ride out the opening barrages and then signal when the enemy was coming. Allied artillery would then hammer the front lines as German infantry pushed on about another 2,500 yards toward a second, intermediate line. Between the front and intermediate line, however, suicide troops were to be placed to harass the advancing Germans until they hit the more strongly held intermediate line. Three Rainbow Battalions were selected to man the intermediate line, interspersed with French units. Major Alexander Anderson's 2nd Battalion of the 165th Infantry was placed with Colonel Arnaud's French 116th Infantry northwest of the Sweep River, in front of the town of Saint-Hilaire-le-Grand, with F&G companies spread from the village of Aubreve to Saint-Hilaire. Company E was separated from them by French units, but butted next to Company K of Captain Robert Albrecht's 3rd Battalion of the 166th Ohio Infantry which was positioned on the front between saint and Soissons, Hauberk's I, L, and M companies were to the right of K Company, separated by the 17th Infantry they were assigned to. In the 84th Brigade Zone with the French 13th Division, four companies of Captain Everett Jackson's 2nd Battalion of the 167th Alabama Infantry were interspersed with the French 109th Infantry. Companies E and F straddled the Soin-Somme Road just south of the Navarin farm. Companies G and H were further to the right, flanked by the French. Another 2,000 yards behind these front-line troops, the remaining units of the Rainbow manned the third line of the Elastic Defense, four regiments and five battalions abreast. On July 4, commanders of the front-line units went to meet their French counterparts and find their positions. The artillery commanders, Riley of the 149th, Colonel Robert Tyndall of the 150th, and Colonel George Leach of the 151st, all went and sighted all the positions for their guns. The American artillery was placed to the rear of the third line, intermixed with French artillery. From there, they could cover the entire area upon which the Rainbow was engaged. 149th artilleryman, Charlie MacArthur, said that from his position, he could see the ancient Cathedral of Rheims, far off in the distance. The ground had many sites from previous campaigns, nicely dug and reinforced, but no American artillerymen inhabited them. The commanders knew better. Those old emplacements had long been sighted by the Germans. The men had to dig anew. General Nolan also had his chief of artillery, Francois Broussard, make sure that the Americans of the Rainbow's sixty seventh Artillery Brigade were thoroughly integrated with the system of barrages so key to the concept of the elastic defense. Barrages A through D were designated for disruption and interdiction at the outset, followed by the boxing in of German forces once they reached the abandoned first line and finally defense of the front of the intermediate line. Broussard also stressed that artillery must know how the infantry thinks. You must spend time with them, he said. The Americans were eager to learn. Just before he was replaced by Brigadier General George Gatley as commander of the brigade on July 9th, Brigadier General Charles McKinstry had the French advice printed up and distributed to all the artillery units. The same day the officers went to find their positions, orders were issued for the men to begin moving into the trenches. As Major Anderson's 2nd Battalion of the 165th Infantry, joined by elements of the 150th Machine Gun Battalion, went into the intermediate line, the 1st and 3rd Battalions filed into the 3rd line behind them. Colonel Frank Ross McCoy, the 165th's commander, set up his command post in the Bois de la Lire, just behind the third line. Anderson set up his command post in a sandbag trench with a piece of corrugated iron over it. The famous chaplain of the 165th, Father Francis Duffy, joined him and would stay in the intermediate line throughout the coming battle. Captain Robert Halbrick and his 166th Infantry officers visited with the commander of the 17th French Infantry, Lieutenant Colonel Pion, that morning. Halbrick and his officers were still filthy from the campaign in the rain, covered in mud and crawling with lice. Pion wondered aloud who had been given to him. Halbrick kept his cool and, with a reassuring and confident manner, put Pion at ease. The Ohio were there to fight. His men found their places amongst the 17th Infantry and began improving their positions. Over the next few days, officers and men, both French and American, would take turns pretending to be Germans, assaulting their lines from every angle. Fields of fire were laid out precisely. When Captain Everett Jackson led his 2nd Battalion of the 167th Infantry into the intermediate line, he had just been put into the position of commander by the regimental commander, Colonel William Screws. Screws thought Jackson showed promise, but he also insisted the unit be paired with the French 109th Infantry, whose commander was a veteran soldier. The regiment's Machine Gun Company was split up two of its platoons supporting companies E and F straddling the sweep Somme Road and another further to the right with companies G and H. F Company's Lieutenant Dan Campbell felt an advantageous position with deep trenches, good firing step, communication trenches, and wire out to the front. Now that the Rainbow Troops were in the lines, there were two rules. Prepare your position and keep out of sight. This is what all the troops remark on about being at the front of the champagne. During the day, there was no movement. Very little sound, but at dusk suddenly there were men everywhere coming out of the ground. Americans, French, Polish, wagons, horses, motorcycles, artillerymen, infantrymen, officers, and all basically going somewhere else. Thousands upon thousands performing all the activities necessary to keep an army in the field. Then at dawn, everybody's back in their holes. Nothing moved, and it was again quiet. A hot, sticky silence as one veteran remembered. The men waited for Ludendorff, Crown Prince Wilhelm's army group, that was known to be amassing in their front. Ludendorff was going to throw Army Group Crown Prince Wilhelm with three armies and 40 divisions at the Allied front from Chateau Thierry to east of Rem. It was dubbed the peace offensive, and that's what all the Germans focused on in their minds, tired of war and knowing the Americans were increasing in greater numbers. West of Rem, General Max von Veen's 7th Army, was to smash across the Marne with 17 divisions. East of Rem, Einem's 3rd and Mudra's 1st armies would push ahead with 23 divisions. Ludendorff brought in his premier artillerist, Colonel Greg Bruckmüller, whose artillery tactics were one of the main reasons behind the German tactical successes in the spring offensives. The problem was that everyone knew about the coming attack. Ludendorff, the Kaiser, the Crown Prince, the man on the street, the French, the Americans. Even after the war, Ludendorff said he knew the plan was known to everyone, but what else could he do? The French and Americans continued to prepare for the slaughter. Behind the lines, it was a massive activity all the time. Garot's headquarters were in the Ferme de Sweep, a stronghold built since 1914. General Menelherr's headquarters was at the Vadenay Farm, just behind Sweep. Lenahan's 83rd Brigade headquarters was at the Sweep Farm, and Brown's 84th headquarters was just north of Sweep. All were in close vicinity of each other eight kilometers south of Suite Zbusset-le-Chateau, and their base hospital number two set up shop with the Rainbow Sanitary Train. The 165th District of Columbia and 167th Oregon Hospital Unit specialized in scabies and gas cases and got set up under Dr. Major Wilbur S. Conkling's command. The hospital had surgical wards and over 1,200 beds. In just a case of a major breakthrough, the 166th Nebraska and 160th Colorado hospitals set up south of Chalon at a Curry secou with facility mimicking base hospital number two's operations, basically. All would see their share of casualties. On July 7th, Goureau issued his now famous dispatch to the men of the 4th Army. We may be attacked at any moment. You all know that a defensive battle was never engaged under more favorable conditions. We are awake and on our guard we are powerfully reinforced with infantry and artillery you will fight on a terrain that you have transformed by our work and your perseverance into a redoubtable fortress this invincible fortress and all its passages are well guarded the bombardment will be terrible you will stand it without weakness the assault will be fierce in a cloud of smoke dust and gas but your positions and your armament are formidable In your breast beat the brave and strong hearts of free men. None shall look to the rear. None shall yield a step. Each shall have but one thought. To kill, to kill a plenty, until they have had their fill. There, your general says to you, you will break this assault, and it will be a happy day. Garou's words meant something to every man that left a record of it. They were going to win or die there, so be it. At high points of the battle that came, men repeated the generals' phrases to each other, and not in jest. Garreau was right and truthful in every word he said. It was understood to all. This was it. The French artillery believed it was that night. They launched 4,000 gas shells into the German lines. No attack came, but by July 11th, high command was predicting July 14th. Expectations ran at a fever pitch, and then July 14th came. Bastille Day the premier French holiday. Behind the lines, French and Americans engaged in sports competitions. In the front lines, the Alabama boys, true to their reputation as wild men, had taken the red paint off the ammunition boxes that had blistered in the sun. They then painted themselves like Indians. Other than that, quiet was maintained. The German lines, however, were alive with activity. Major General Menaher noticed it himself two days earlier. It was as if concealment was no longer of concern. Garreau believed that this was the day. That afternoon, he had the staffs of his command gather at his command post at the Ferme des Suites, where they drank a toast to what lay ahead. Then it broke up, and all of them went to their post. That night at Rainbow Headquarters in Vadenay Farm, MacArthur was sharing a fruit cake he had just received from his brother, Captain Arthur MacArthur, United States Navy, who was on convoy duty in the North Atlantic. It had been mailed at Christmas. The staff was digging into the rock-hard but still edible fruitcake when the word came from French headquarters. Francois 570. The German attack would be that night. The fruitcake was forgotten. The division units were alerted. Then, in the dark, division headquarters moved out and forward to its battle command post in a shell-proof cavern of several large rooms excavated in chalk. At 10 p.m., Leslie Languille and his 149th artillery mates were in their pup tents next to a wooded area by the sweet Saint-Hilaire Road. They heard firing off to their left. A half hour later, they heard it to their right. They didn't know it, but raids were in the offing. Goreau had to know what was going on. He sent out two parties, and one came back with an Alsatian prisoner, who was done with the war. He told them everything. The Germans were massing for attack. Bombardment would begin at 12 a.m., Infantry units would push forward at 4 a.m. Michael Lenahan was at his headquarters at Sweet Farm when he got a phone call from MacArthur. His voice said, Liberty. Lenahan answered, Liberty Bond. Then MacArthur gave the code that meant the Germans were mounting the attack. All men to their posts. Francois 570. French artillery started pulling up in front of Garot's third line, where they could hit targets deep in the German lines. Many differ on the time, but at some time around 11.45 on July 15th, French artillery began hammering at towns and crossroads behind the German lines, where it would be obvious to mass troops. No one in the rainbow had ever heard anything like it. They heard fire in the Lorraine at Luneville-Bacharat, but this was different. Then the German artillery responded. Two thousand pieces of Bruckmuller's artillery broke along the hundred kilometer front. Night became day, and all artillery fire, the Rainbow Experience after this, would be measured to the Champagne. On the battlefield, it is unbelievable anything survived. Men were in their trenches or had just moved up when the alarm came. All except for 88 men of H Company, 165th Infantry. They were in a wiring party working in front of the lines when the barrage began. They would suffer an almost 100% casualty rate. Ammunition dumps were blowing up, German balloons burned in the sky, the REM Cathedral was on fire, a pine forest was on fire, a horse barn of the Indiana supply train had taken a direct hit, trenches heaved in, burying troops, shrapnel, shell, gas, and only the shrieks of the stricken horses seemed to pierce the sound of the artillery. Every man had his gas mask and gas coat on. It was a nightmare. Yet still, the ammunition trains and mobile artillery moved fearlessly through the shelling using the many bridges the 117th Engineers had built across all the ditches, away from the roads that were now getting plastered. The problem for the Germans was that Bruckmuller's artillerists were hitting the wrong targets. They were killing many men in their third line, for sure, but mostly they were hitting the rear areas and the abandoned front line, not the intermediate line. The sacrificial troops in the front line were all French. None were American. Their job was to survive bombardment and launch rockets when the German infantry arrived at the front line. If still alive, they had to make their way back to the intermediate line, through the no-man's-land inhabited by Allied suicide squads set to destroy as many Germans as possible. Here there was one American suicide squad. 2nd Lieutenant Clyde Vaughn, of the 3rd Battalion, 166th Infantry, was about one kilometer in front of the intermediate line with half a platoon of a men and an anti-tank gun. They had no expectations of making it out alive. At 3.50 a.m., the three German armies embarked on the peace offensive with every expectation of victory. It was planned they would break through and be in Chalon sur marne by the morning of the 16th. Over the Butte de Menil and the butte So they came. At about 4 a.m., the Germans reached the front line, but there were no demoralized troops shattered by bombardment. There were no bodies. There were only red and green flares going off, and red and green rockets with three white stars. The signal. Germans are at the front. It was the signal every American artilleryman had been waiting for while they hugged their guns or the walls of the trench during the bombardment. Then came the order. Cannoneers to your guns! Fire! The guns of the 149th, 150th, 151st artillery opened on their designated targets plotted up to a week earlier. They fired until their barrels were red hot and had to be swabbed with water after every round, causing havoc in the German attackers. The flare set off another set of ama- American artillery, the 117th Trench Mortar Battery. Captain Robert Gill's men were placed at the right of the line with the French 13th Division and far ahead of the 2nd Battalion of the 167th G and H Companies. At the first shelling, they left their pup tents next to a wood and ran to their guns buried in deep trenches. At the sight of the flares, they began firing at their designated targets on the front lines, raking back and forth and killing hundreds of Germans, now tired and organizing for a push forward. Gill's men fired for six hours straight, disrupting the attacks that now came at the Alabamians and French 109th Infantry. They fought until most of their pieces were destroyed and then moved to the rear, having knocked out four tanks and hundreds of Germans. At 6 a.m., across the line of the front Rainbow Battalions, the German wave began reaching the intermediate line. Supported by a sky full of German planes, they crashed into the New Yorkers on the left, the Ohio men in the center, and the Alabamians on the right. The Germans were now exhausted. Hammered by the artillery, having lost momentum and manpower, fighting their way through the suicide groups and then reaching Garro's intermediate line, still relatively unscathed by the bombardment and full of fight. In each area, witnesses to the event said you could see the large formations of Germans coming on the horizon. Then they reached Garou's kill zone. Despite all they had been through, hundreds of Germans made it all the way to the American intermediate line. Dawn was now breaking all over the battlefield. Smoke, fire, mist, haze and gas were everywhere. All you could really see in your gas mask were forms. In all three rainbow battalions, the fighting was getting close and personal. On the left of the 165th line, the cry went up as the enemy appeared, BOSH! BOSH! Machine gunners of the 150th slammed away at the Germans coming forward. Lieutenant Frank McNamara Stokes mortar men went to work. Small arms fire broke out everywhere, and boxes and boxes of hand grenades were being emptied as fast as they could be opened. Many Germans approached the New Yorkers' lines were wearing French uniforms. It enraged them. Captain John T. Prout's G. Company of the 165th was guarding the Aubrey saint hilaire Le Grand Road. Just before the bombardment on the night of the 14th, Colonel Arnaud of the 116th French Infantry advised Prout he might want to place men in the rear to shoot any that tried to run away. Prout calmly informed Arnaud his men were not cowards. Arnaud quickly saw his error and apologized. He had no reason to worry. At the high point of their attack, the Germans found a position north of the road that massed them from fire. Men concentrated there. Then suddenly a swath of them launched into bayonet attack against the G Company line. Lieutenant Kenneth Ogle's first platoon was waiting for something to happen. They launched out of their own trenches, and in a bayonet attack of their own ended the German momentum, dispatching all the attackers as all along the rainbow line, the German dead were everywhere. In the center, the German wave broke on Halbrecht's Ohio men. Down over the distant hill they came in squad columns. Captain Hellroaring Harry Graves, a German by birth, commanded I Company, and it bore the brunt of the German onslaught. As in the New York section, determined Germans made it right to the front of the trenches. At one point, Lieutenant Walter Christensen of the 2nd Platoon mounted the parapet, and was throwing grenade after grenade into the attacking Germans. Wounded twice, he was later awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. The trenches the Ohio were in were the old second line of trenches. Old communication trenches still fed out of them and forward. Corporal Umbra of the 3rd platoon was guarding one of the openings with an automatic rifle. Many Germans came up the natural channel into the trench, and Umbra laid them all low, perfectly hidden and spitting death. Farther to the left of Company K was fending off the Germans, but also French artillery. During the battle, the French artillery shortened up their range and began hitting the Ohio trenches. Flares signaling the artillery to stop were to no avail, and some were killed in the friendly fire. K Company ended up with 33 casualties. It wouldn't be known until after the war, but Lieutenant Vaughn and his Ohio suicide squad were taken prisoner. They fell for the Germans in the French uniforms' trick. They fought until about 7.30 a.m., but then were approached by what appeared to be a French squad. Claiming to be from the front line, they asked to come into their trenches. Vaughn had his jaw separated from his face by a German rifle butt, and he and the remainder of his crew were quickly overwhelmed. On the right, the French 13th Division and Alabama Battalion were facing their own onslaught. Seven times the Germans came at the Alabama front, and seven times they were repulsed. Lieutenant Colonel Walter Bear was in a tree spotting he said the germans didn't know what hit them he saw an artillery crew with horses pull up just in front of the intermediate line as if they were on parade and expecting to just walk through the lines as soon as they appeared bear said they were obliterated by allied artillery the alabama lines were the only spot on the line that day where the germans captured a trench and gained control for a brief period the german penetration did not last long Alabamians and the French in the second trenches of the intermediate line went over the top with an Indian war whoop and put the invaders to the test. Bowie knives flashed, bayonets were driven home, and stick grenades and pineapples were flying fast. It was over quickly. The Alabamians took 25 prisoners, seized multiple machine guns, and killed or drove off the rest. The trench was theirs again. A few months later, they would be accused of all sorts of atrocities in the Champagne. Captain Jackson's men were all exonerated, of course, but there was no mistaking. The men from Alabama were then there to end the war. The 167th's reputation as the Tigers would be proven time and again throughout the war. The German attacks ended around 11 a.m. on July 15th. On the left, the French 170th Division was reinforced with the 3rd Battalion, 165th Infantry, that afternoon and two companies of the 168th Iowa, so far not engaged in front-line combat, joined the 13th Division on the right. The elastic defense worked as it was meant to, and thousands of Germans were dead from the intermediate line north, deep into the enemy lines. Artillery destroyed them, but their desire to make this the peace offensive and finally end the war drove them to Stone wall. As Lieutenant Colonel Baer said later, the attack was a complete failure. No more attacks came on July 15th. German airplanes dominated the skies, artillery still plowed up the landscape, but except for a determined thrust by the German 12th Corps against the 2nd and 3rd battalions of the 165th Infantry on the morning of July 16th, the fighting in the Rainbow area ceased. General Ludendorff said the offensive east of Rheims was terminated that same day. Though the German 7th Army achieved early success against the French 5th Army south of the Marne, mainly because Berthelot didn't employ elastic defense, it could not be sustained. The peace offensive ended, and Supreme Allied Commander Ferdinand Foch's counterattack began immediately against the western edge of the German salient. The Germans were on the defensive for the rest of the war. The Rainbow took stock of their situation. In the aftermath, it was realized that the 2nd Bavarian, 4th Prussian Guard Cavalry, and the 1st Division had hit the 83rd Brigade. The German 1st Bavarian, 7th, and 88th Divisions struck the 84th Brigade area. There were 1,567 Rainbow dead and wounded. Only Lieutenant Vaughan's men had been taken prisoner. It was a stark price for the Rainbow, as they had 2,014 total casualties after three months in Lorraine. That number had almost been equaled in a 24-hour period. The intermediate lines supplied and prepared for the next attack that never came. In the succeeding days, raids were conducted to the front, but no Germans were found. The question is, where was Douglas MacArthur during the Battle of the Champagne? We know he was at Gouraud's headquarters with all the commanders the afternoon of the 14th. And then he was at Rainbow headquarters at Vaudenay when the code word Francois 570 was received. MacArthur then notified all the commanders. Major Stanley Roebaugh of the 167th Infantry said he was with MacArthur at the Alabama Battalion headquarters on the intermediate line during the shelling. Robaugh said he saw MacArthur bend over to pick up a shell fragment that had just missed him, but he immediately dropped it and began rubbing his hands together because it was red hot. MacArthur himself said he was on our main line of defense when the rockets and flares started going off signaling that the Germans had made it to the abandoned front line. But then what? MacArthur was heavily decorated and praised for his actions at the champagne major general menaher cited him for bravery a citation which became his second silver star just after the battle menaher said macarthur is the bloodiest officer i know there is no job an infantryman could be given that he might not look up and find the chief of staff with him i'm afraid we're going to lose him some day nominated macarthur as a commander of the legion of honor he only served with MacArthur for a few weeks, but the Lion of Africa said he was the finest and bravest officer he had ever served with. What did Menahur and Garo see? They were not people to give false praise. MacArthur never spoke of the battle to anyone, but he did say that after the battle, war held no romance for him at all anymore, and that he lost the ability to play or have a good time. He was revolted, by what he had seen in the lousy Champagne. On July 18th, the word came to move out. The Rainbow was going to the Ork River region to take part in the offensive. Yagoril wanted to thank them all. He met all the commanding officers, of 42nd Division at Coupeilly, south of Sweep, on the 19th. There he explained exactly what the Rainbow had just taken part in the plan of elastic defense, how they had turned the tide of the war at that very spot and how their stellar performance allowed Foch to now take the offensive. The bond was sealed between the 4th Army, Goureau, and the Men of the Rainbow. In 1923, Goureau came to the United States for the National Reunion of Rainbow De Veterans in Baltimore, Maryland, home to the 117th Trench Mortar Battery that had fought so gallantly in the Champagne. Goureau visited many of his old Rainbow comrades throughout the states, always in uniform and always their general. He would remain a lifelong friend of Douglas MacArthur, and until his death in 1946, Gouret was the honorary president of the Rainbow Division Veterans Association. The national reunion date of the Rainbow Veterans was the anniversary of the Battle of the Champagne, July 15th, the day the Rainbow Division knew they had become soldiers. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at Amanda.Williams at Norfolk.gov.